Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. As part of our inspiring TED Talk series, spotlighting can't-miss TED Talks and their key takeaways, I explore Margaret Hefferman's famous 2012 TED Talk, Dare to Disagree. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I'm excited to share Margaret Heffernan's famous 2012 TED Talk, Dare to Disagree. Most people instinctively avoid conflict, but as Margaret Heffernan shows us, good disagreement is central to progress. She illustrates, sometimes counterintuitively, how the best partners aren't echo chambers and how great research teams, relationships, and businesses allow people to deeply disagree. I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. In Oxford in the 1950s, there was a fantastic doctor who was very unusual, named Alice Stewart. And Alice was unusual, partly because, of course, she was a woman, which was pretty rare in the 1950s. And she was brilliant. She was, one of the, at the time, the youngest fellow to be elected to the Royal College of Physicians. She was unusual, too, because she continued to work after she got married, after she had kids. And even after she got divorced and was a single parent, she continued her medical work. And she was unusual because she was really interested in a new science, the emerging field of epidemiology, the study of patterns in disease. But like every scientist, she appreciated that to make her mark, what she needed to do was find a hard problem and solve it. The hard problem that Alice chose was the rising incidence of childhood cancers. Most disease is correlated with poverty, but in the case of childhood cancers, the children who were dying seemed mostly to come from affluent families. So what, she wanted to know, could explain this anomaly? Now, Alice had trouble getting funding for her research. In the end, she got just 1,000 pounds from the Lady Tata Memorial Prize, and that meant she knew she only had one shot at collecting her data. Now, she had no idea what to look for. This really was a needle in a haystack sort of search. So she asked everything she could think of. Had the children eaten boiled sweets? Had they consumed colored drinks? Did they eat fish and chips? Did they have indoor or outdoor plumbing? What time of life had they started school? And when her carbon-copied questionnaire started to come back, one thing and one thing only jumped out with a statistical clarity of a kind that most scientists can only dream of. By a rate of two to one, the children who had died had had mothers who had been x-rayed when pregnant. 
Now that finding flew in the face of conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom held that everything was safe up to a point, a threshold. It flew in the face of conventional wisdom, which was huge enthusiasm for the cool new technology of that age, which was the x-ray machine. And it flew in the face of doctors' idea of themselves, which was as people who helped patients, they didn't harm them. Nevertheless, Alice Stewart rushed to publish her preliminary findings in The Lancet in 1956. People got very excited. There was talk of the Nobel Prize. And Alice really was in a big hurry to try to study all the cases of childhood cancer she could find before they disappeared. In fact, she need not have hurried. It was fully 25 years before the British and, medical, British and American medical establishments abandoned the practice of X-raying pregnant women. As she lays out this history, it's a little mind-boggling to think that such a major medical breakthrough, such a huge scientific discovery, took another 25 years before it could go into practice. So then the question is why? Is it just because she was a woman? People didn't take her seriously? Perhaps. That might have been part of it. In, in fact, that might have been a big part of it. But, as she'll continue to discuss throughout the rest of her TED Talk, that's not really the, the focus of her topic today. She's focusing on why, whether it was a woman or a man or whomever, why would such a huge scientific discovery not be taken seriously and implemented immediately, or at least close to immediately, especially when people's lives are at stake? It's a huge question. And frankly, it plays out over and over and over again in organizations each and every day as someone is brave enough to challenge the status quo, challenge conventional wisdom, and often, all too often, they are met with, with additional barriers, they're met with skepticism, and change simply doesn't happen. As she continues on in her TED Talk, she'll explore why this is the case and how we can disrupt this sort of counterintuitively negative behavior on the part of individuals, leaders, and organizations. The data was out there, it was open, it was freely available, but nobody wanted to know. A child a week was dying, but nothing changed. Openness alone can't drive change. So for 25 years, Alice Stewart had a very big fight on her hands. So how did she know that she was right? Well, she had a fantastic model for thinking. She worked with a statistician named George Neal, and George was pretty much everything that Alice wasn't. So Alice was very outgoing and sociable, and George was a recluse. Alice was very warm, very empathetic with her patients. George frankly preferred numbers to people. But he said this fantastic thing about their working relationship. He said, my job is to prove Dr. Stewart wrong. He actively sought disconfirmation. Different ways of looking at her models, at her statistics, different ways of crunching the data in order to disprove her. 
he saw his job as creating conflict around her theories because it was only by not being able to prove that she was wrong that George could give Alice the confidence she needed to know that she was right. People simply didn't want to know. And isn't that the truth? People love their certainty. They love their comfort. They love things staying the same. When you disrupt, when you challenge the status quo, when you are putting forth ideas that are contrary to conventional wisdom and disrupt the mainstream, people will resist almost always. And so that's certainly what she was experiencing. Now, I love how it talks about her partnership, her partnership with a man who saw it as his purpose, as his role, his job to challenge her, to try to disprove her, to try to push her thinking so hard and to put holes into her arguments as to actually ensure that she was able to respond to every last critique, every last argument, and that she could feel confident that what she was proposing was actually the right thing. It's a fantastic model of collaboration. Thinking partners who aren't echo chambers. I wonder how many of us have or dare to have such collaborators. Alice and George were very good at conflict. They saw it as thinking. So what does that kind of constructive conflict require? Well, first of all, it requires that we find people who are very different from ourselves. That means we have to resist the neurobiological drive, which means that we really prefer people mostly like ourselves. And it means we have to seek out people with different backgrounds, different disciplines, different ways of thinking, and different experience, and find ways to engage with them. That requires a lot of patience and a lot of energy. And the more I've thought about this, the more I think, really, that that's a kind of love. Because you simply won't commit that kind of energy and time if you don't really care. And it also means that we have to be prepared to change our minds. Alice's daughter told me that every time Alice went head to head with a fellow scientist, they made her think and think and think again. My mother, she said, my mother didn't enjoy a fight, but she was really good at them. Conflict as thinking. Partners who get us out of our echo chambers. Purposeful diversity to challenge our thinking, to push our thinking, and to help us get to more creative, out-of-the-box solutions. We hear about this all the time. We hear about the value of diversity, the value of inclusion. We hear about the importance of disruption. But in practice, how many people are daring enough, are brave enough, to actually embrace that kind of an approach in their teams and with their collaborators, with those people that they work closely with each and every day. Because it does take an, a tremendous amount of emotional energy to willingly invite disruption, to willingly invite argument, to willingly invite critique, to willingly 
invite the type of challenges to your own thinking that will help you strengthen your position. That's hard work. That takes a lot of effort. That takes a lot of energy. And frankly, most people who, who lead organizations are busy. They have a lot on their plate. They're already taxed emotionally. Their energy is needed in so many different ways. And so it's, it's human nature. It's our natural biological response to want people who are like us, who agree with us, because then that makes it easier, at least in the short run, for us to move things forward. The problem is, in the long run, it actually isn't easier. You end up with decisions that aren't as solid, aren't as strong. You come up with solutions that aren't as innovative, aren't as valuable. And ultimately, individuals, teams, and organizations are less productive, less innovative, less creative when they don't have this type of disruptive conversation on a regular basis, critique and disruption It's one thing to do that in a one-to-one -one relationship, but it strikes me that the biggest problems we face, many of the biggest disasters that we've experienced, mostly haven't come from individuals, they've come from organizations, some of them bigger than countries, many of them capable of affecting hundreds, thousands, even millions of lives. So how do organizations think? Well, for the most part, they don't. And that isn't because they don't want to. It's really because they can't. And they can't because the people inside of them are too afraid of conflict. In surveys of European and American executives, fully 85% of them acknowledged that they had issues or concerns at work that they were afraid to raise. Afraid of the conflict that that would provoke, afraid to get embroiled in arguments that they did not know how to manage and felt that they were bound to lose. 85% is a really big number. It means that organizations mostly can't do what George and Alice so triumphantly did. They can't think together. And it means that people like many of us who have run organizations and gone out of our way to try to find the very best people we can mostly fail to get the best out of them. 85% are afraid of conflict. And again, we're not just talking about conflict for conflict's sake. We're not talking about people just being disagreeable to be disagreeable. We're, we're talking about someone who notices something that's wrong there's a problem There's with process, procedure, with policy, or with a product, or how we interact with customers. They see something wrong. They see something that needs to be fixed, something that's perhaps even troubling, or something they need to, to call out to, to address. And 85% are afraid of constructive dialogue. Conflict, really is just challenging the status quo within an organization. They don't feel like they are in a safe place to be able to bring those things up, even though research has shown that so many other people have those same concerns. Nobody 
feels safe to bring up those concerns. So how do you foster the courage? How do you foster an environment where people do feel safe, where people understand that it's their responsibility to challenge, it's their responsibility to seek out constructive conflict? Because it is that within that constructive conflict that we collectively are doing our thinking. And without doing collective thinking, we're truly not achieving an organization's potential because we're not tapping into individuals' potential or teams' potential. So how do we develop the skills that we need? Because it does take skill and practice too. If we aren't going to be afraid of conflict, we have to see it as thinking, and then we have to get really good at it. So recently, I worked with a, an executive named Joe, and Joe worked for a medical device company. And Joe was very worried about the device that he was working on. He thought that it was too complicated, and he thought that its complexity created margins of error that could really hurt people. He was afraid of doing damage to the patients he was trying to help. But when he looked around his organization, nobody else seemed to be at all worried. So he didn't really want to say anything. After all, maybe they knew something he didn't. Maybe he'd look stupid. But he kept worrying about it, and he worried about it so much that he got to the point where he thought the only thing he could do was leave a job he loved. In the end, Joe and I found a way for him to raise his concerns. And what happened then is what almost always happens in this situation. It turned out everybody had exactly the same questions and doubts. So now Joe had allies. They could think together. And yes, there was a lot of conflict and debate and argument, but that allowed everyone around the table to be creative, to solve the problem, and to change the device. Joe is what a lot of people might think of as a whistleblower, except that like almost all whistleblowers, he wasn't a crank at all. He was passionately devoted to the organization and the higher purposes that that organization served. But he had been so afraid of conflict until finally he became more afraid of the silence. And when he dared to speak, he discovered much more inside himself and much more given the system than he had ever imagined. And his colleagues don't think of him as a crank. They think of him as a leader. They think of him as a leader because he was leading. He was the only one willing to speak up, the only one willing to voice the concern. And lo and behold, when he spoke up, others came forward and said, yeah, I'm worried about that too. Yeah, that's a problem. We need to address that. But no one else was willing to step forward first. So by definition, he was a leader. That's amazing. And it shouldn't be so uncommon. Unfortunately, it's been my experience in most organizations that that is exactly what usually happens, particularly when people feel vulnerable, when they feel threatened, when they feel like their job could be on the line if they bring something up and challenge their boss challenge their superiors or in some way maybe do something that might make them look stupid. People only worry about looking stupid when you have an unsafe environment where people are punished for asking questions. Rather than staying quiet, 
we need to step forward. We need to challenge. I really like the idea of loyal dissent. It takes courage. It takes real commitment to an organization to look past the flaws of the people, the policies, the practices, procedures within that organization. Organization that you are committed to, that you love, that you are passionate about. It takes real commitment to be willing to disrupt, to dissent, and to challenge when you know you might get blowback, when you know that that might actually hurt your standing. So how do we have these conversations more easily and more often? Well, the University of Delft requires that its PhD students have to submit five statements that they're prepared to defend. It doesn't really matter what the statements are about. What matters is that the candidates are willing and able to stand up to authority. I think it's a fantastic system, but I think leaving it to PhD candidates is far too few people and way too late in life. I think we need to be think teaching these skills to kids and adults at every stage of their development if we want to have thinking organizations and a thinking society. The fact is that most of the biggest catastrophes that we've witnessed rarely come from information that is secret or hidden. It comes from information that is freely available and out there, but that we are willfully blind to because we can't handle, don't want to handle the conflict that it provokes. But when we dare to break that silence or when we dare to see and we create conflict, we enable ourselves and the people around us to do our very best thinking. Open information is fantastic. Open networks are essential. But the truth won't set us free until we develop the skills and the habit and the talent and the moral courage to use it. Openness isn't the end. It's the beginning. to develop the skill, to develop our talent around courageous dissent, around challenging, around disrupting the status quo, around being willing to speak up when the silence is deafening, when injustices are occurring, when problems are hurting people. They don't have to be purposeful. They don't have to be intentional. But when we notice things, we have a responsibility to speak up and we can learn how to do that constructively. We can learn how to do that in a way where people will listen, where we have a chance to lead. It doesn't need to be scary. We can create organizations that have a culture that encourages this type of behavior. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. We need to be willing to step forward and try. We need to reward honesty. We need to reward courageous input. We need commitment to collective thinking as we foster an inclusive environment that is safe, 
for people to dissent, for people to challenge, for people to disrupt. As we can do that, organizations will thrive, we will reach our greatest potential, and organizations will as well. I hope you've enjoyed this TED Talk, Dare to Disagree. And as always, I hope you stay healthy and safe, that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day, and that you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.